I feel like there is this concern that chasing excellence and being gritty and caring about your achievement is a kind of zero-sum game with happiness and life satisfaction. The data don't suggest that. My experience doesn't suggest that. The stories that people tell me of their own life, and again, I'm not saying that everybody's happy, but there are so many people that exemplify a life of dedication and hard work and of happiness and humor and friends and family that I think we should tell young people, look, don't assume that's not possible. It's 100% possible. Hi, I'm Jubin, operating partner at Kleiner Perkins, and I'm excited that you're tuning into Grit. The goal of this is not for it to be a highlight reel of how successful my guests are, rather a candid exploration of how hard it is, both personally and professionally, to create, build, and scale world-class organizations. If you're a fan of the show, please subscribe, leave a review, and make sure to follow us on LinkedIn or Twitter. Thanks. Are you more comfortable on my side of the interviewer yeah, interviewing? Yeah, I'm usually, well, let's see. Yes, I am. Usually I'm being interviewed, so you're driving the conversation. Usually I'm in the passenger seat. Yeah. And then the podcast that I usually record here is supposed to be like 50-50, like a more of a kind of a, you know, we're both just conversing. So I will say that I don't have a lot of experience preparing to interview another human that I don't know very well. Yeah. That makes sense. Yeah. Can I give you an observation of something that yeah. that struck me? Yeah, totally. And you re-reminded me of it again when you sat down. Do you have a weird thing with time? Which way? Like, uh, tell me more. So one thing that immediately caught my attention was we got introduced through Luis from Duolingo. Yeah. And I sent you an email Friday afternoon, I think, from his introduction. Friday afternoon. You sent me an email back Sunday. So like not even before the weekend had ended. And in your email, you apologized for the delay. And I immediately took notice of that. And I thought, that's actually really nice. And I appreciate that, but also kind of unnecessary. You're like, wait, why are you apologizing? It's Sunday. And then you walked in and you were basically on time, three minutes late. And you're like... You oh, again no, made yeah, mention I of am the definitely, time. Definitely, I have a thing with time. So whether it's a weird thing or not, so one is if it starts at five thirty, I should be here at five thirty. And I was walking from Wharton, and our meeting went over. So and then I was like, do I have his phone number? And I was like, I don't think so. So anyway, then I was like, well, it'll take me more time to look for his phone number because that'll delay my like pace. So anyway, I do have a thing about being punctual, which isn't to say that I am always punctual, but I think it's good to be punctual because it's respectful. And then in terms of email, I think I have a kind of like, if I don't answer within 24 hours, I think it's late, but I actually don't know that that's a good thing. Like I highly recommend my don't be late for anything, always be early, but I'm not sure answering emails in the first 24 hours is like a good rule. I just try to. How many emails do you think you get in a given day? I think I get like 150. That's actually less bad than I would think. It's not so bad. That seems reasonable. I'm sure like Brene Brown has like a thousand emails a day or something. This idea of time, have you always been this way? Have you been this way since a kid? No, but I don't think I was like a tardy person by disposition. But if you ask me like on the last day of the class, I just finished teaching at Wharton and I teach a course called Leading with Grit and I teach a course called Grit Lab and they're pretty much the same course, but one is for the MBA students and I consider them already gritty performers who have to lead other people now and bring out their grit. And then the undergraduates are between 18 and 21. So they are developing as performers and they're not yet leaders. And on the very last day of class, 
I try to actually give some actionable advice, and they ask me questions that are very practical. And I remember one student asking me, whatever the question was, the answer was, okay, let me give you one extremely specific tip. Be early. I think there were some other things that went along with that. But the be early part was, you know, Olympic athletes. I remember reading this story of a multiple gold medalist female swimmer, and the article itself was quite dated. And so the swimmer must have been like not in our generation. Maybe she was her generation's Katie Ledecky. And she had this memory of the day that she realized that it's time to come to practice early, not on time to come early and not just once, but every practice. And it was a seriousness of purpose. It was like, no, we're doing this. And that also probably led to more seriousness. It's like, well, this is a sign of my seriousness, but maybe this is almost a catalyst to being more serious. And I think being on time is a habit that it shows respect to other people, but there is a kind of like, no, are we doing this? Or are we not doing this? We're going to do it. Then like show up early. And I said to the student who asked me the question, I was like, you know who shows up two to five minutes early for every Zoom call I've ever been on with him? Danny Kahneman. If Danny Kahneman, who is like- The goat in your world. The goat, right. Greatest of all time. I think he's the greatest living psychologist, not only of his generation, of my generation, he's the greatest living psychologist. You know, Danny Kahneman, entering his 10th decade of life, is coming two to five minutes early to a Zoom call, happy to wait in the waiting room for the young buck who's supposed to like start. I was like, how many minutes do you think you should come before the call starts? And then I told them a story of a college senior that I had recently had one of those like advice giving uh-huh. conversations with. And it was supposed to start at 6 p.m. I came two minutes early. She came exactly at 6 p.m. So she was not late, but she was not coming at the time that I would recommend. And I don't remember if I told her, I was like, oh, I don't want to scare the hell out of this young woman. But at some subsequent conversation, I'm going to give her the extremely actionable, simple advice of show up two minutes early. Why not? In the commentary on the Young Buck and Danny Kahneman thing, are you the Young Buck in that equation? I think everyone is a Young Buck compared to Danny at this point, as he would put it, because I can't exactly remember how old he is, but I'm guessing around 90. So there are only a few people who are older than him. But yeah, I'm the Young Buck. Is it weird the way that you think of Danny so many think of you. Has it just become... I don't think anybody thinks I'm the goat. I think a lot of people really, really look up to you and admire you. Do you not think that? I am probably like viscerally uncomfortable with the idea that anybody would look up to me like the rest of us look up to Danny Kahneman or like fill in the blank goat. That's probably how I was raised also. By the way, in my class, I also said to them, anything that's hard to do, for me, it's like taking compliments, for example. You need to practice it in advance. So I practiced in front of them. I was like, look, give me a compliment. And I said, you start with saying, it was effective when, Dr. Duckworth. And then students went around, they raised their hands and like, oh, it was effective when. It was effective when you use examples in class that are really relevant to us. I was like, okay, great. Thank you. What I hear you saying is that you think I'm the goat for some segment of psychology like Jubin, that makes you feel a little uncomfortable, but it's also, it's so flattering. Thank you. But let me ask you this. Do you think anybody who's at the top of their profession would ever acknowledge that they are at the top of their profession? 
Yeah, I think the deeper question is, where is the waterline in the head of that person for like how well they're doing, for example? Somebody who's... Maybe take a step further. Yeah. Maybe that the reason they are where they are in their profession is because their cognitive dissonance from the outside world to how they see themselves is the tickle that burns their fire in a way that if they maybe were acknowledging of their kind of like self-actualized self in the world... That's a, a simple question that I think has two answers. So if the question is some form of, do you think perhaps what makes great people great is the mindset that you're never great enough, that they would never say like, oh, I must be at the top of the mountain. I don't see anybody else up here. I've gotten to some kind of apex. Maybe what makes them great is that they don't say that, that they're always comparing themselves to a higher standard, that they would never think of themselves as the GOAT, because to be the GOAT would mean that there's nowhere farther to go, maybe. I think that's a simple question that has two answers. And the reason I think it has two answers is that one answer is yes. I think you're right, that there's something... I can't even count the number of world expert fill in the you know volleyball player you know chef behavioral scientist economist tech entrepreneur like in their ecosystem you could very defensively argue they're the goat and i can't count the number of those champions who just never think about that and they're always it's almost cliche like oh i'm my hardest critic are they their hardest critic like oh yes <laughs> i'll give you one specific example and then i'll give you the other answer and i think that's why this simple question has some complexity. So there is a teacher that I think is among the greatest of all time. His name is Mr. Yam. His students call him Yam for short. And for a long time, he's now principal. He's in the LA Unified School District. And for a long time, he was um, teaching math in these public schools. I believe it was East LA, although I'm not a, an expert on LA geography. And he, he has, you know, very diverse student population. You know, many of his students were the kids of migrant farm workers. Definitely not an affluent school. And anybody who sends their kids to the LA Unified School District public schools is probably not actually in the um, most affluent stratum of society. So Mr. Yam taught math with considerable passion. For example, when everybody else goes shopping on Black Friday, his students are like practicing math with him because that's one more day to prepare for the AP calculus exam. I don't know, Jubin, if you're old enough to remember like Jaime Escalante, but stand and deliver. It's a true life story of this teacher who was like, I am going to get these kids, these kids who don't look like they're the kinds of kids who are going to get a five out of five on the AP calculus exam. I'm going to get these kids to get a five out of five on the AP calculus exam. Mr. Yam, Yam, is exactly that kind of teacher. He, for example, would have regularly, like all of his students get fives on the AP calculus exam, or, you know, some years like, oh, well, that kid got a four, but they started off as a one, right? So fantastic teacher, so dedicated that I think when he would pull into the parking lot, he never had a problem getting a parking space. The way to do that is just be the very first human being to arrive at the school and never had to wait getting out because he would be like among the last to leave. So very much show up early, leave late. And the reason I found out about him is because I was reading a story in the Los Angeles Times about this teacher who not only had his kids get a five, you know, getting a five is a big deal. That's like full credit. That's college level performance while you're still in high school. But Every year, there's only a small number, maybe I'm going to say a dozen kids who literally get a perfect score. In other words, there are no errors on the exam whatsoever. And around the world, maybe say there's a, a dozen. I could be wrong, but I think order of magnitude, that's about right. 
And Mr. Yang was in the paper because his student, Cedric Argueta, if I remember the name correctly, was one of those 12 kids. And so there's this little story and there's this picture. I remember the picture. It was like Mr. Yang laughing and Cedric maybe making a joke. They were both laughing. And I remember, I don't know, did I send a telegram? Did I send a letter? I was like, I want to talk to that teacher. I was like, I want to find out where the teacher is and I want to interview them and I want to interview his student. As I got to know Yom better, which I did, and I'm now friends with him, but at first I was you know, just a, a student of trying to understand like what makes this person one of the greatest teachers of all time. You know, I was struck by many things, you know, like his fastidious preparedness, like he had these notes on like every student. I mean, he had these systems he had developed. He was basically preparing his students the way an Olympic coach prepares their athletes. But the reason I bring up this question of like, is he the sort of person who after any performance, and it doesn't matter how good it was, was, will think about what went wrong and not what went right? I would say yes. And here's the example. So I, I ask Yam and Cedric if they'll come out to a teacher conference over the summer called Educator Summit. They both say yes. They fly out from LA and they're being interviewed on stage by, I think it was the head of the college board at the time. And and still, I think it was being interviewed by David Coleman. And, you know, they were their charming selves. And David asked them questions. And Yam said what he wanted to say about his perspective on teaching. And Cedric said what he was up to. I think he ended up going to Stanford undergrad. And now I believe. Cedric is getting his PhD in, I think, mathematics or engineering at Princeton, so it's a happy ending. But if you go back to that moment in time, what happens after they get off the stage? What happens after I thank them for coming out and being just rock stars? There's a celebratory dinner. Like, that's what's supposed to happen, right? But Yom wants to go back to his hotel room and replay minute by minute everything that had happened on stage as he was just in conversation, being interviewed, and think about what he should have done differently. So yeah, I think that the first answer is maybe there is something about always moving the finish line for yourself, always asking yourself to get to a level that you're not yet at, that is the simple answer to the question. Like Maybe champions never feel like they're the GOAT. But my second answer to the question, Jubin, is that, like, you know, at some level, I think there is a recognition that you have achieved something. So here's another story. There's a chef I've studied and now have become, you know, more friends with, but his name is Mark Vetri. And, you know, James Beard nominations, you know, one of the most famous chefs in Philadelphia, widely known among all the other chefs. That's one way to know that you're talking to a goat is like the other people think that that person is world class. And I was taking this cooking class, actually. This is early in our acquaintance. And my husband thought it would be a fun thing to splurge and get me one of those, oh, the chef teaches eight people how to cook. So I'm there and we're all like, you know, on our little stools and I'm sitting next to Jason, but there are, I guess, six other people. And, um, you know, I don't know, we're making pasta. It's, It's all Italian food. And I remember pesto was the next thing that we were making. And we're about five minutes into the pesto lesson. And this woman raises her hand and she says, so we're making pesto. And Mark says, that's right. And she says, I think I know how to make pesto, right? Like, thinking pretty much buy it at Whole Foods, right? Some version of that. And he puts down his knife or whatever. He was, and he leans forward just a little bit. And he looks her in the eye. And without any animosity, but with considerable pride, he says, this pesto is going to be better than the pesto you buy at Whole Foods. And she says, why? And he says, because I know how to cook. And he picks up his knife and he proceeds. So I think the second answer to my question is, you know, 
I think when you're Danny Kahneman or a triple gold medalist or Mark Vetri, there is at some level a recognition and a justifiable pride that you're pretty good at what you do. Yeah. So these people are able to keep both things in mind. It reminds me of uh, Devil Wears Prada is my favorite movie. I talk oh, about love it, way, it. I talk about it way too much on now this I show. Now I love you 20% more. I talk, more. I talk about it way too much. And number one, I had a Devil Wears Prada flashback to when Meryl Streep is like, do you think this is just clothes? And then she goes into <laughs> talking about the sequence of like where the clothes is made and all yes. these things. Do you remember that That's scene? That's the scene. When Anne yeah, Hathaway yeah, yeah. kind of giggles at the idea of her telling her that the jacket doesn't match the necklace, doesn't match the pants. Okay, I see. You think this has nothing to do with you. You go to your closet and you select, I don't know, that lumpy blue sweater, for instance, because you're trying to tell the world that you take yourself too seriously to care about what you put on your back. But what you don't know is that that sweater is not just blue. It's not turquoise. It's not lapis. It's actually cerulean. And you're also blithely unaware of the fact that in 2002, Oscar de la Renta did a collection of cerulean gowns. And then I think it was Yves Saint Laurent, wasn't it, who showed cerulean military jackets? I think we need a jacket here. Mm. And then cerulean quickly showed up in the collections of eight different designers. And then it uh, filtered down through the department stores and then trickled on down into some tragic casual corner where you no doubt fished it out of some clearance bin. However, that blue represents millions of dollars and countless jobs. And it's sort of comical how you think that you've made a choice that exempts you from the fashion industry when in fact you're wearing a sweater that was selected for you by the people in this room. Anyway. No, that's exactly that scene. And I think it's why I will never get bored of studying experts. I love these people who see these nuances that, you know, the rest of us are deaf and blind to, right? Because we don't have their expertise. And so, you know, in that moment, I think Miranda, right? Was there any Miranda? Miranda, Like, yeah. I think there was pride. I I don't want to say that these champions who are always their harshest critic and always looking for what they could do better. I think they do allow themselves some pride at times. Before I ask you a bunch of questions about Grit, are you over-talking about it? I'm being like somewhat facetious, but also kind of serious. Like your whole identity has been wrapped around this concept of what you have defined as Grit. In some ways from maybe the outside world in. That's how people know you, okay? And again, maybe this is all wrong. Maybe you disagree with this. But are you over people constantly asking you about this concept? Do you want to just talk about something else? I... We'll never get bored of talking about grit because to me, it's less about, oh, you made this questionnaire and then you did a little bit of research showing that it predicts achievement and that it's not related to IQ or other measures of talent. That's not why I won't get bored of talking about or thinking about grit. I will never bore of the subject of excellence, human excellence in the endeavors that we choose to do as humans. And that could be somebody free soloing a mountain face. It could be like a figure skater. It could be somebody who makes pesto. Like anybody who's chasing the top of the mountain and then as soon as they get there looking for a bigger mountain to climb, like nothing could be more fascinating. So I don't get tired of thinking about it, of talking about it, of trying to understand it better. There is, though, I think, for me, another mountain. To me, if I can, as a psychologist, try to understand 
where the hell it comes from. I think what I was able to do when I wrote the book Grid is to capture on paper a portrait of these people and a little bit of what's inside their head, their mindsets, their attitudes, their habits. But I think what's interesting to me is to ask, like, well, where'd they get those mindsets and habits and attitudes? How do I be a little more like them? And I think that takes you outside of someone's head and it raises the more complex question that I don't have a complete answer to yet. Like, well, who mentors these people? What are the people around them like? Physically, if I follow them around with a camera, do they live in the the same kinds of spaces that we do? Do they change the places that they live and the people they're with? So that's what's occupying me now. Is dissatisfaction a prerequisite to grit? I think that you have to be not only satisfied with being dissatisfied, I think you have to chase dissatisfaction. I think people who are complacent or they're almost chasing complacency, right? You know, what is life? Like life is to be satisfied, right? Life is to feel comfortable, to feel enough. If that's your life philosophy, which by the way, I don't think is any morally better or worse than the kind of philosophy that I think gritty people live by, then you'll never, I think, be truly world-class because there's a lot of sacrifice in grit. But this kind of dwelling in dissatisfaction, chasing dissatisfaction, speaking personally, how old am I? I'm 53. I'm going on 54. I'm quite obviously over the halfway point in my life. I don't want to waste a single moment kind of hanging out and being complacent, like not professionally, for sure. Do you want to instill that in your children? Would you take it that far? Meaning, is being satisfied being dissatisfied can be a very lonely place to be. And uh, I think chasing greatness is something that I think you feel the toll of that. Do you think that it is a lonely place? What makes you say that? In my mind, it's kind of you against you. In my line of work, it's very lonely at the top for CEOs because they have very few people around them that are doing the thing that they're doing in the same way that they're doing it. And so I think if you're really pursuing a unique form of greatness, mm. it becomes very lonely because you don't mm. have many people to commiserate with right. what's who going understand, on. Who yes. would have the same response to yes. the same situation. And even other authors can't really relate to the things that maybe you're going through in that way. And so what about that's CEOs? Why. What about CEOs? Don't they just bond with other CEOs who are at the top of some other industry? I think they do. And I think they commiserate, relatively speaking, on man, it really sucks when we have to fire XYZ person. But when push comes to shove, each of these journeys is so unique. Each business has its own jagged edges that look very dissimilar from others. Mm. Meaning if Alex Honnold climbs one mountain and another climber climbs the second tallest peak and neither of them have climbed the other peak, they can talk about how difficult it was, but they can't really get in that person's head when they're at one jagged edge and the specific move that they had to do. That's where I think it becomes very lonely. I am trying to think about what my own experience is because it's what psychologists do, by the way. We run statistics and we collect data, but I think psychologists are psychologists because they first ask, what's my experience? And they try to figure things out from that. So I'm trying to do that. And I'm also trying to think about your question about, you know, would I want my daughters to live a life of constantly pursuing some kind of excellence that they'll never really be satisfied with. Which is what your father instilled in you, correct? Yeah. And my father was a great example of how to be miserable, right? So 
there's a good cautionary tale in my dad's life. I mean, not to say that he was miserable every moment of the day, not to say that he didn't at some point feel a certain pride or satisfaction. But I want to say this. Certainly, it's possible to be very gritty and successful and miserable. But I think it's also possible to be gritty and successful and happy. I think it's possible to be gritty, successful, happy, and whatever the opposite of lonely is. I don't know what the antonym of lonely is. First of all, let's start with data. If you just look at the general population or if you look at you know, samples of people where people's grit scores are all over the map or they're not all exceptionally gritty. And you look at measures of happiness, which is something that for a long time psychologists didn't think you could ever measure, but it turns out to be unbelievably simple. You just ask people some version of how happy are you. Generally, the one item that is used in international surveys is overall, how satisfied are you with your life? which is very important. Not how satisfied are you with your performance last night, Mr. Yam, on stage? Would you do anything differently? But overall, Yam, Angela, Jubin, Luis, how satisfied are you with your life? And if you look at that correlation, if you look at that data, it's a positive correlation. The grittier you are, the more likely you are to say, yeah, I'm satisfied with my life overall. So I don't think the data just on the face of it would suggest that it's absolutely inevitable that you're going to be lonely. I think of the people that I've studied, some of them are unhappy, but I think many of them are happy and they're unlonely, probably not so much because like they found other CEOs, but because they have found companionship romantically, right? I'm not lonely because I'm married to Jason Duckworth. I'm pretty sure I'd be a whole lot lonelier if I weren't. So when I think about my daughters, whose names are Amanda and Lucy, as you know, who are home tonight from college, so it's a good day Sorry, to be asking Sorry, Amanda and Lucy, that. I'm taking mom's time away. It's okay, they're making dinner, and then I, I told them that we were having this conversation and that we would all eat dinner afterwards. They're totally cool with that. I mean, I would say to them the same thing I would say to any young person, which is, you know, I think these days in particular, there's a lot of worrying that kids are working too hard and they're getting stressed out too early and too much, and that we expect too much of them, and that we should expect them to work a little less or they're burned out already and they're 18. I've had 20-year-olds ask me questions about work-life balance and they're very concerned about setting off on their career trajectories with a sustainable pace. And I'll tell you, I hope I don't get canceled for this, but I mean, I'll tell you what I really think. I think if you're 18 or 20 or 22 and you're already thinking like, gee, I wonder how I can make this a nine-to-five career. Like, you know, I really want to make sure there's ample time to like not be thinking about work. I say to them, well, look, I hope you sleep enough. Any life where you are not able to sleep as much as your body needs to sleep, something's wrong. I hope you can exercise enough. I think if you don't have a schedule that enables you to exercise pretty much every day, there's something wrong. I hope that you have friends, and I hope the time that you have with your friends, you can really be there and not skimp, something I did probably too much when I was their age. But I was like, if you take the 168 hours you have in a week and you subtract all the time you might possibly need or want for sleep, and then you subtract the amount of time that you would want to exercise, and then you subtract the amount of time that you would want to spend really quality time with your family and friends, you know what? What's left is more than 40 hours. It is. And if I were your age and I were at the peak of my mental and physical powers, I would not be asking, gee, how do I set a course for a nine to five life? 
Why would you do that? Why not grind? You're so smart. You have so much energy. Don't you want to do something where you want to run down the stairs as I often want to do? Like, oh, I want to read this. I want to, I want to talk to this person. I feel like there is this concern that chasing excellence and being gritty and caring about your achievement is a kind of zero-sum game with happiness and life satisfaction. The data don't suggest that. My experience doesn't suggest that. The stories that people tell me of their own life, and again, I'm not saying that everybody's happy, but there are so many people that exemplify a life of dedication and hard work and of happiness and humor and friends and family that I think we should tell young people, look, don't assume that's not possible. It's 100% possible. Did you enjoy writing the book? Writing Grit was, at the time, the hardest thing I had ever done. And you had just said maybe 10 minutes ago, you immediately, once that was done, began to look for another peak. And so even you... I had sushi first. I remember ordering sushi. I was like, (laughs) I think I deserve getting takeout sushi. I think you do too. How do you square this idea that you know that the ride is the thing that you should be enjoying? Because once you reach the mountaintop, you're going to go look for the next thing, but then not enjoying the ride. How do you square that? This age-old question, is success a journey or a destination, which, by the way, many people have said, including Arthur Ashe. He's my favorite person who said it, Wimbledon champion and also a beautiful writer. So if anybody wants to ask this question and who said it first, I don't know. But definitely Arthur Ashe said success is a journey, not a destination. And for a time, I had the habit of asking every person I was interviewing the question, is success a journey or destination, is the last question I would ask them. I have so far not gotten the answer, oh, it's a destination, but what does that mean? Well, there is actually research on this from researchers at Stanford Business School, and you should link to it in the notes for your podcast because the paper is really cool. So this research at Stanford Business School where you randomly assign people, if I recall correctly, to either metaphorically think of success as a journey versus thinking about success as a destination, if people are actually making reasonably good progress. And these are the kind of people you're talking about. They are successful, right? That framing of success as a journey is very helpful. It's very motivating. They may be thinking about all of the things they're learning. They're kind of not done yet. So in other words, it wins. It's better to think of success as a journey in that research, in most of the studies. I will say that the destination has to matter. I mean, I'm watching the NIAID documentary on Netflix. I don't know Diana Nyad. I have never interviewed her, but somebody who's training to swim from Cuba to Florida and does it repeatedly over her career, failing with near fatal results every time. You could say, oh, well, that's an example of somebody who considers the pursuit of the goal more important than the achievement of the goal. Okay, maybe that is where her head is when she wakes up in the morning and she does it again and she does it again. But she absolutely wanted to check off that goal. I mean, her own words, her own writing, when you ask a champion, like, does the gold medal not matter? Do you not actually care if you finish the novel? It is both. But I think the reason why that phrase, you know, success is a journey is so charismatic and so motivating to people is that I do think that champions are able to not obsess about the destination 
And maybe because they are enjoying the journey of getting better, if you actually watch the very last moments of Diana Nyad's TED Talk, she actually brings up this metaphor, and then she says, for her, it's the person she becomes on the journey. I feel like all of these things are true. I cared about finishing the book. It would not have been the same if I had had the same journey, but not achieved the destination of finishing the book that I wanted to write. The journey was very important. It is what I thought about most days when I woke up. And I do think this word character, which Nyad may have used, she certainly, I think, implied, I think there is something about the character that you show and you develop on a very hard journey that is very satisfying to me. I will tell you, my answer to the question overall, how satisfied are you with your life? I'd be like, what's your scale? Zero to 10, I'm an 11. Is it zero to 100? I'm 120. I'm really happy. Like, I really am. I work so hard. I wake up and I have a cup of tea. And even while I'm drinking the tea, I'm working. I'm like, okay, like that's when my day starts. I open my eyes. I try to think of a few good things in my life. And then I work. And then I work pretty much all all the way through, you know, I take a break to exercise. You know, I hope to be present when I'm talking to somebody like you. But then I maybe half an hour before I go to sleep, I read a little bit and then I do it again. And sometimes I don't know if it's Saturday or Sunday or Wednesday because my weekends are a lot like my weekdays. And I'm doing that because I want to. Do you ever feel guilty? About what? Maybe personally, I feel the same way about work. It doesn't feel like work to me. I've learned from my parents that they had a job when I was growing up. They're scientists. It was a job. They got a lot of intellectual stimulation from it. But the conversation at my dinner table was about the kind of challenges of the job. Mm. Both my mom and stepdad were scientists, so they understood each other's worlds really well. They actually both worked together. And so for me, I think maybe in my subconscious, it was developed that I never want this feeling at my dinner table of talking about the trials and tribulations of a given day. So when you say job, you mean they didn't talk about it like a calling or they didn't talk about it like a joyful pursuit? They That's only... right. They were excited to yeah. retire. They did this as a means to an end. Oh, right. Yes, 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 yes. And yeah. I think it's hard because they're first generation immigrants. So this was their way out. Right. And now I have the privilege of finding right. the job that I want. Right. Sometimes I feel guilty about working all the time because it's my version of fun. It would be like if I loved basketball yeah, and I'm always playing basketball. Yeah. And that comes- At a cost. At a cost. So who would be bearing the cost in your life? It could be anyone from, honestly, I'll start with some people at work. Mm. I think a lot of people that fly close to my son bear that cost mm. because the reality is they have other commitments and they probably don't like getting pinged by me on things that I'm excited by or thinking about it. All of these random hours, I'm 100% exhausting. <laughs> so that's probably one cohort. There's probably kind of the next concentric circle, which is my loved ones, my partner, my family, my yeah. friends, et cetera. Yeah. And you can kind of keep building out from there. They suffer not because you're sending them emails at times with like, oh my gosh, another email from Jubin. Because I'm trading their time for right. mine. Right, so then that is a conflict of time and attention. Yes. Right? And then maybe I'll take it kind of yeah. to the logical extreme, which is also this idea of I like the idea of being present when I'm with all of these different people. But because I'm so consumed at times by 
ideas of things that I want to do in the kind of professional realm. I'm not. I'm yeah. completely somewhere else. And I'm not good at faking it and I'm not good at hiding it. And my eyes are everywhere. And so anyway, that's yeah. what I mean. So that's what you mean by guilty. And I think that's a really good example for me to then see whether I, I feel the same way. Well, can I buy you time for a second and yeah. give you the other example in my world? Yeah, go. Which yeah. is entrepreneurs and people building companies. That's the most extreme version of hard work that yeah. is all consuming, that is against all 24 odds, 7, including when you're odds. sleeping, right? And most of it is, it doesn't actually feel fun in many ways. It's glass chewing. And so I think they feel this to the most extreme of the compromise that they're making because of this higher calling of their perceived potential that they need to go fulfill. I should know this, but I I'm not 100% sure, I'm 95% sure that the, you know, the root word of passion is sacrifice. It's either sacrifice or suffering and I'm always confusing the two, but you get the vibe. So there's got to be a cost. I mean, if you're going to do this all the time, what are you not doing? So I think this is an excellent question to introspect on a little bit and to maybe share the observations of people that I study. Can you start with you? When I look at my routine, I probably work, I think 70 hours a week to me is like a nice pace. 70 hours to me is like when you're jogging and you can still have a conversation because that's like 12 hours a day. And then it's five hours on Saturday and five hours on Sunday. And wow, five hours on Saturday. Like, oh my gosh, you can do so many other things. You go to the farmer's market. You can take a walk with your friend Barb. Play golf. Dinner. <laughs> Play golf. Yes, I haven't picked up golf. But I can do a lot of things that I want to do. Ditto for Sunday. Like, oh my gosh, 12 hours a day on the weekdays, five hours. You could do a staycation with your husband. I would be like, wow, that is jogging at a comfortable speaking pace. You know, this week, am I working? So, no, I'm working more than that, right? And I'm like, hmm, don't really want to do this. And so sometimes I feel like, oh, well, somebody else said, hey, 70 hours a week, they'd probably be like, oh, my gosh, that's so much. So I, I think that there's some Angela who's like, oh, I think I must work really hard. And there must be a lot of sacrifice. There must be a cost and like, you know, what's being given up and how am I managing that? But like, there's another me who's like, it doesn't feel like that. I guess I don't have a glass chewing career either, right? Like I don't have to do some of the really hard things that entrepreneurs have to do or investors, right? And by the way, I live a life where mostly I get hugged, literally. Like I see my students and they literally hug me. I had a couple of hugs today. They leave me thank you notes. They bring me cookies. You know, I try to do a good job, but I'm not fighting anyone. I mean, there are a million jobs in the world that are just tougher than mine, but I do work 70 hours a week and I don't feel guilt about like not learning the guitar or not being up to date on pop culture. I'm also, by the way, Jubin, deeply and maybe dangerously ignorant of current events and also history. So I know what I know, but I actually don't know most things. But I don't feel guilty about that. I don't care, honestly. I'm like, somebody else can be an expert on the Middle East. I'm not going to contribute anything there. I don't know anything about the mind-body problem. I'm not very good at mechanics and physics. But I don't feel any guilt about what I'm giving up, what I'm sacrificing within my own 168-hour apportionment of hours per week. I do think there could be a reasonable amount of sacrifice on the part of other people, like you said. So what about the people I work with? Am I exhausting them? What about my husband? Am I spending enough time with him? What about my two daughters? What about my mother-in-law? What about my mom? So there, if I do a reckoning, and I don't know if anybody can do this without bias, I will say that I'm sure there were times where it was selfish 
to do what I was doing, either working on the book or working on something else. I'm sure there were times where I wasn't present. I mean, I have this picture in a photo album. I think my daughters were showing me. I guess we were shopping for mattresses. And I was like on one of the mattresses, but I was like reading a stack of scientific papers. And I think the caption was like, mom getting work done while we shop. And I have countless little drawings of my daughters when they were really little. And it's like, mommy, daddy, Amanda, Lucy. And then like, they're all normal. And I have a laptop in front of my face with like just the crown of my head barely visible. So clearly there were probably times where I was being selfish and I I should feel guilty because I was not doing things that were better for everybody else. Within my own life, I don't feel like that. And now I have the advantage of being an empty nester. You know, my husband grinds, I grind. We see each other at dinner. We see each other in the morning. And we're just not the kind of people who want to spend our lives hanging out and relaxing. So we're compatible that way. But I'm guessing that you, Jubin, don't feel that guilty. Personally? Yeah. I don't really have a choice is kind of my feeling. It's just what I am. And... There's an alternate bizarro world where I feel horrible all the time and I am constantly thinking about how others perceive me in this form and therefore I change my behavior. I start to create more, in air quotes, balance in my life and I f***ing hate myself. You know, I... I, (laughs) Soft and squishy Jubin. I hate that Jubin, you know? Um, You don't want to be that Jubin. Well, I'm just not sure I'm wired to be that Jubin. That's just not... Yeah, and whether genetically or like life experience, but like the Jubin you are. Yeah, right. Like it's not your character. What was the second thing behind Grit that your data showed you? If there was like a list of things, Grit being at the top, that was the precursor to the people that you studied of like, this is the thing that made them so high achieving. What was number two? Oh, you mean what is it other than grit that makes people high achieving? Like what was the second most obvious one? If you were to write another book, which you are, which we'll get to, but if there was a word. Yeah, no, but that's not what my book is about. Like, I think the thing that I was going to study as a PhD, if I didn't study effort, what led me to grit was just the psychology of effort and, you know, the psychology of achievement. And then I was like, oh, who are these people who are really successful? What is the nature of their effort? And what's in their heads that makes them want to do this. That led me to grit. But the other thing I could have easily have studied was charisma. When people say like, wow, Oprah Winfrey, Barack Obama, you know it when you see it. People, they're like sunspots. People are really attracted to them. I don't actually think charisma is a common denominator of high achievers because you don't have to be charismatic to be a chess player or even an artist. I pause there because like, in the economy for attention that we all live in now, you kind of do have to have a little charisma even to be an artist. But I don't think charisma is a common denominator in that there are pursuits that don't require charisma. But I think in the kind of work that you do, you tell me if I'm wrong, I haven't met a successful founder who's not a fantastic storyteller. If they're not at the beginning, they learn to be uh, because you cannot motivate people without being a world-class storyteller, and you also can't get anybody else to invest in you or to follow you from the outside. So charisma, I think, would have been a fun thing to study, but I chose not to. Can I tell you an observation? Just you square it up for me. Yeah. I'm 165 episodes in to this podcast, and the question that I get all the time is, what are the common denominators? Mm. And these are, in my mind, the most high-achieving business people in Silicon Valley. And by objective standards, they are too, which is the way 
as a scientist, I'd be like, now we're talking, yeah. right? Yeah, this yeah. isn't just one person's opinion. No, that's right. And I think Grit was the most obvious name of the show, courtesy of your book. Thank you. But that was the most obvious thing to me as well. Before I even started the podcast, when I would look at these founders, it was their ability to overcome hardship more consistently than anybody else. That was the precursor to me if they would win. Uh, interesting. That and was, just to double click on that, when so many other people would be like, okay, I'm done. Yeah, that's right. And then not to go too far down the rabbit hole, but then a lot of people ask me about, well, what is it about? I like about, this rabbit hole. This what is, is it about hole. grit, Jubin? Is it literally gritting your teeth? Maybe the misconception in my mind of this word is that the operative part of this is doing the hard thing. Yeah. And I actually think the operative part is loving it. In your equation of passion plus perseverance, where most people's mind goes is the perseverance. Is the perseverance. Right. Where my mind goes is the passion. Is the passion. Do you agree with that? I do. And it sounds like we're contradicting ourselves. Like, wait, he's talking about chewing glass. Like, now he's talking about loving this. Is it sacrifice? Is it not sacrifice? Like, it all makes sense to me. Mm -hmm. And so, those that are willing to overcome hardship more that have the ability to do so are generally off the Richter scale on the passion part. I remember some NFL team, I'm not really actually into sports, so I can't remember which one, but they were facing this draft choice. And at least by their estimates, I mean, I wasn't as intimately involved in like how they came, but basically like, who do we take? This player is high in perseverance, but not as high in passion. The other player is the opposite. So which matters more? And I said... Well, that's a hard choice, but if it were up to me, I would choose the guy who's high in passion. We could teach them the resilient skills. We could teach them a growth mindset. We could teach them to like, but like you have to begin with loving, loving what you do. Mm -hmm. So I believe that, and by the way, I don't have a lot of data behind this, but I do have a strong intuition. That's the foundational element. And most people will actually emerge as shockingly resilient people once they do love something. And it's almost impossible to be that hardworking and that consistent and that resilient about something that you don't deeply love. That's exactly right. And I think the unique challenge with company building is that in startups, they're growing exponentially, meaning you'll go from zero to two million to eight million to 16 million to 50 million. And for someone to grow at that exponential pace, we're growing linearly. And so there is a clear mismatch on how do you keep pace with something that's growing so fast. And it seems to me that what closes that gap is grit. But specifically, what closes that gap, in my observation, again, this is anecdotal, not data-driven, is those that care so much that they're learning at a pace that allows them to close that gap. I wonder, Jubin, if you have the same experience I've had where there's a very gritty individual, and I'm thinking about someone in particular, but I'm not going to say who. And wow, they have so many deficits. Like, they don't know how to do this. They don't know how to do that. People don't like this about them. People don't know like that. And you're like, God, they're frustrating, honestly. And then what happens? Well, they are so goddamn gritty that they learn X. They learn Y. They learn Z. They remediate A. They figure out B. And like... Guess what? This person, who I will not name, is as successful as you can imagine. And it is grit. I mean, this is why I'm sure people will disagree with me, but I agree with you. I'm like, you know what? You can find somebody who is 10 out of 10 on grit. Oh, my gosh. 
run, don't walk, to like hire them and fund them, that person will prevail. Mm-hmm. And by the way, the thing that I wanted you to square with me is I have only found one other common denominator and I'm desperate for more. Trust me. Oh my me, gosh. Because, now you've got because, me like on the edge of my seat. Because one I would other love thing. nothing more than the idea to sound so smart to come back to my firm and to all of my other guests. With the secret? And with all of these things. The formula. The formula, The magic right. potion. You're like, what else goes in the of recipe? achievement. And it's so innocuous. It is a strong partner at home. That is the only other thing. And the weird thing is similar to how grit surprised me where I thought of grit as perseverance, not passion. Yeah. This surprised me too because growing up, my idea of successful people was that the cost of success was in most cases their partner at home. Right. And you used the word lonely, right? Yes. And you painted us a portrait of yes. a person on a background where there's like nothing, maybe a mountain, but mm-hmm. not another person, right? Mm-hmm. Now we have a portrait and there's like two people in the portrait, right? You That's have the right. gritty person and their partner. Can you tell me more about when you say a strong partner at home, I assume you mean their spouse or the equivalent, not necessarily a brother or a sister, or, yeah. or am I wrong? So I do reference calls on almost every guest. Maybe not you, because I was kind of squeaking by for your time anyway, so I didn't want to take up more of it. But for pretty much every guest, I do reference calls. I talk to their family. I talk to their husband or their wife. I do interviews of people close to them in their life to study why are they this way, because I want a composite of who I'm walking into before I get into that room. In most cases, they haven't written a book, so at least I have a little bit of a head start with you. And many times... The reference call is their partner at home. And what I mean by partner is in almost every case, they give me that person as a reference. I don't ask for it. They give me that person. And in almost every case, they've been together for so long and they're like hopelessly in love with each other. And (laughs) that is so surprising to me. It is so surprising to me. I love this observation. Like, do you have a theory, and I'm sure you've thought about it long and hard, about why that is the case? Let's assume it's true. Let's assume that another common denominator of people who are very successful founders or achievers is that they have a strong partner at home. Let's assume that's the case. Then the question would be, why would that be? Like, is it causal? Is it just a symptom of something else? I have hunches. I'll just throw them out and then maybe you spitball back to me what you think. I think it's a few things. One, I think it's so daunting, this idea of taking on a hill like a startup or trying to be the greatest athlete or whatever, that it is irrational. It is quite literally irrational. You're so untethered from reality with your ambition that I think there needs to be almost a counterweight that's grounding you to like real life and the world. It seems to me that a partner is a really effective channel to tether you back to the real right, world. To like have this perspective. Yes, it's just know. a counterbalance yeah, yeah. that reminds you of the things that also matter in your life, whether that's the rest of your family or your kids or the random movie that you want to watch. That's one. So maybe that's like kind of idea number one. I think idea number two is that in many cases, these partners are attracted to the grit of this person when they met. And so I think that there's this thing that happens where if you're an entrepreneur, most people are telling you you're f***ing crazy. Most investors are telling you no. Most employees don't want to work for you. You're trying to get funding. You're trying to do this. You're trying to do that. If you're in sales, you hear 
no nine times out of 10. And I think that with a partner, generally speaking, they were gritty before. And maybe they just found a new vocation that they've excelled in. And so maybe, again, I don't know, I'm just, I'm theorizing, but like maybe that support system is really, really important to push you and give you some belief that you think you have, that the outside world thinks you have, but that deep down there is this insecurity that maybe a reminder is really helpful. And maybe just to put a bow on this and I'll shut up is someone asked me, what's something that most people believe about you that you don't agree with? So my answer I think was that I am more insecure than most people would think. And the voices in my head are not how you think of me. Right. There's, a, there's an asymmetry between what people would think is going on in your head, like the little inner monologue yeah. and what it really is. And I think I have a great partner at home. And that person is, at the times when you need it most, I think just there to remind you that what you're doing is to go fulfill your calling. You're doing it because of the journey to go fulfill this potential that you see in yourself. And so anyway, I think when you said what's number two, right? And I was like, I don't know, what are you talking about? And you're like, well, what's number two? I was thinking about, well, other characteristics, other aspects of character, other talents of people. What I love about your answer is your number two is not that person. It's a whole other person. It's something about their situation. It's about the strong partner at home. So right there, super interesting. Okay, so what I hear you saying is like, look, who knows, but maybe what that person is is like a tether to some perspective. And that's very helpful, especially helpful for somebody who tends to get obsessed about something and maybe lacks that. But the second thing is just that that foundation, the support system that especially maybe during times of confidence threatening episodes in life. If I'm hearing you right, I would agree with those things. And I think there's more to unpack there. I think the third thing might be, who's the sort of person who's able to have that kind of support? I think there's also what we would say in psychology or social science is like selection bias. Like if you are investing in someone, you're like, oh my gosh, they seem to have these like fantastic relationships. And maybe this one in particular, like you learned a lot about that person, didn't you? Because like not everybody is able to do that, right? Attracts another person, is able to stay in a relationship. So I think there's information in kind of who ends up in a really strong, stable relationship. As There's also information in like what they're getting out of, there's speculation at least. Do you understand the difference? Like one is selection, one is development, one's like selection by one's causal. But again, speak personally, so I'm madly in love with my husband. I decided the day we met that we were going to get married. He decided a little bit later than that, but I don't think it's possible to be any more in love with somebody than I am with Jason. I don't think it's, I mean, every day I wake up and I'm like, wow, I am so loved. I say that almost out loud and sometimes I do say it out loud. And everything that you say rings true. Would I be able to do what I'm doing without Jason? I don't think so. I guess there's a question that's kind of more and more relevant, which is have you, Jubin, found that there are two people at home, one the strong partner for the other, and they're both really gritty? Or do you find like, Diana Nyad with sidekick Bonnie, but Bonnie's really like just basically you get two for one. You get two human beings and one, one pursuit of excellence. Do you find symmetry in the people that you fund, for example? I think the discovery process is not quick. And I think, unfortunately, it's a pretty quick exchange between me and the partners at home. So probably worth exploring more. 
Yeah, power couples. I think that would be a whole other thing. That I, would be. I'm thinking that there will be power couples. I think there are a lot of pursuits where it's like, no, these are just two people who are cooperating in I one project. I think it's more project. the latter. I think it's more that they're just really symbiotic. So you think there's more symmetric couples yes. that are like they're both pursuing their excellence and like they just No, no, no. I think it's no, the opposite of yeah, that. Yeah, yeah, that's what I thought. Right, right, yeah. I think that's probably true. Yeah. Yeah, I think that's probably true. So, can I give you my second Devil Wears Prada moment? Oh my gosh, of course. <laughs> yes. So, and we might have to bleep this out so your editor doesn't kill both you and I, uh, <laughs> okay. your publisher, but you sent me the first chapters of the next book. Yeah, I did. As and a Google Doc with open access, so I'm that, it was that's amazing. a lot of trust. It was amazing. I'm going to earn your trust and I didn't share it. Good. Thank you, uh, Juven. And it reminded me of when Meryl Streep asked Anne Hathaway to get the kids the Harry Potter books oh, before, yes. before their train ride. Yeah, and the unpublished could... next Harry Potter book. Yeah, yeah. I was on the train reading it. That's what I felt like. <laughs> That's what I felt like. Oh my gosh. Uh, I love that. The more references to the Devil Wears Prada or Meryl Streep or Anne Hathaway, actually, for that matter, the better. But yes, I sent those to you telling you that they weren't complete, right? I haven't finished the book. No, there's like, I felt like I was cheating. Like there was comments in there. Oh um, yeah. It's all like, yeah. How, how, how far in are you? Like 60%, 80%? Um, Probably like 65% or so. Depends on how many chapters there end up being. Title of the book is... You know, I was going to call it easier, but I've had second thoughts about that. Huh. I was going to call it something like change your situation to change yourself. But like, you know, what matters is what's before the colon and not what's after the colon. I was going to call it easier because the book is about how gritty people are trying to do great things, but they're not just working harder which I think is a common misconception, like, oh, you work 60 hours, maybe you work 70 hours, you work a nine, make you work a 10. No, they're trying to actually figure out situations, people, places that make the project easier. So I was like, oh, I'll call it easier. But I think that might not be the right title in part because if you don't understand the first lesson, which is that nothing in this life comes without hours and hours and hours of dedicated hard work, then you will get nowhere. And I don't want to mislead by having a title that suggests that there is some shortcut way to excellence. So if this book were only bought by hardworking people, I think easier would be exactly the right title. But I haven't thought of a better one yet. It reminded me a little bit of, in my world, what some investors will say, actually the greatest investors would say, is market matters more than anything. Pick the right market. Yes. And the reason that they say that is because if the pie is growing so quickly, then all boats will rise with that tide. But if a tide is growing, barely inching up or going down or receding, then you're really fighting. You're fighting the current. You're fighting the current. And the thing is, so, okay, this is why... Two things. I hardly know what investors do. Like, you know, you'd be like, oh, do you know what I do? And I'd be like, not really. But there are these two investors and I can't even tell you what kind they are. Maybe it's private equity. Maybe they run a hedge fund. But I know their names, Mark Leader and Roger Krauss. And, and they're great guys and they're very successful. And I don't know exactly what kind of investing. But we were talking about this general topic and they said, oh, well, you know the advice we give young people. 40% of success is that you're in the right industry. I think that sounds like, you know, the market matters more than anything. 40%, if you're a young person, and you're figuring out what to do. It's like, did you pick the right company? 
in the right industry, right? So that's 80. 20% is everything else. It's grit. It's talent. It's everything else. And the reason I think this parable or this lesson is not a parable. Maybe we should make a parable. It needs to be said again and again to young people is that I think the most ambitious, hardest working young people learn at some point in life a very dangerous lesson. And that is no pain, no gain. They learn this kind of you know, I want to go to bed tired. I want to like feel the muscles aching. I want to feel like I gave it all I could give. And the mistake that they can make when they take that lesson is that that's victory. Success is basically like trying really hard. And if you're not winning, then try harder. And I think they miss this kind of like, well, pick the right market, choose a situation that's easy for you. And I think that is actually the spirit of this book. Of course, you should work hard. But the first and most important thing is to be in a situation where effort has a return on investment. I had an aha moment when I was reading this, where you mentioned something about therapy. I can't remember where it was in the book, but it really lit a light bulb for me because I've tried to do therapy for I cannot tell you how long to quiet some of the voices between my ears. And it doesn't seem to work for me. Is that right? It does not seem to work for for me. In my mind, it seems that if I were to apply the principles of this book, that maybe the reason that therapy wasn't working for me is because it focuses so much on my response to the environment rather than changing the underlying environment. The environment itself. But so much of therapy is focused on how I deal right. with either Juven, past, how are you or, thinking cur- about this? past like, or current environment. Can we think about this a different way, right? Like it's all about your response, your thoughts. I have to agree with you. I, I think that a great therapist, one of the lessons of the book is if it's not working, maybe you should change your situation. So it may or may not be that therapy won't work. Maybe Jubin needs a different therapist. But I think a great therapist will ask the upstream question. Yes, we should think about how Jubin's responding to things emotionally, behaviorally. Of course, we want to talk to Jubin about his thoughts, what led to those actions. Let's think about how we understand the world we live in, Jubin. But I think a great therapist would ask the fundamental question, which is, is Jubin in the right situation? Is Jubin in the right market? Is he in the right company? Is he living in the right city? And I think those preliminary questions, if you will, like the earliest questions you can ask, sometimes we just get so drawn our attention into like, are we trying hard enough? Are we thinking about things the right way? Are you in the right goddamn situation? And I don't think I wrote about this in the book yet. Maybe I will, maybe I won't. But my husband and I lived in the suburbs of Philadelphia. We raised our girls there partly because we didn't have enough money to buy a house that was big enough in the city. At the time they were growing up, it was the perfect suburb, had a great playground, terrific schools. But there was a time where we made an intentional decision to pick up our roots and relocate to Center City, Philadelphia, because we're really city mice. We're not country mice. And we're like, oh, my gosh, terrific. We'll walk everywhere, you know, go out and get an iced coffee, you know, walk to the museum. It's great. And that decision, like, should you just like look up for a second and be like, hold on, maybe it's not only about changing my response, you know, emotionally. Maybe it's not just thinking about things the right way, having the right mindset. Maybe sometimes the best thing you can do to improve your life is to change your situation. I think that in some ways obvious prescription is lost, especially on the hard workers in the world. I think that's very, very well said. How do you think about changing the situation versus exerting 
personal effort to overcome a challenge. I think, how does that paradox live in your mind? They're not exactly either or, but I think when most people think about overcoming a challenge, you know, you mentioned a moment ago, Jubin, like it's like gritting your teeth, it's like stealing yourself. So what research shows, um, including research that I haven't yet published, is that when people think of something that's hard to do, you know, they really think of their will, their willpower. It's like them against the situation, right? Okay, can you fight harder? Can you overcome your situation? There is a kind of incredible Hulk you know, machoism to that, I think, honestly. It's like, oh, can you overpower the circumstances that are against you? And I prefer a kind of James Bond smart. It's like, well, what would be a clever way? What would be a way to figure out how to do this without Herculean effort, without kind of like just pushing against the situation? Is there a way that I could move to a different situation or change the situation in a way that I'm not pressing against it. But I think there's something so ingrained in us about the heroism of, well, you know, this poem that we all love, Invictus, you know, you're captain of your fate, you're master of your soul. I mean, there is this um, imagery in that poem that I love, too. Like, I love the poem Invictus. And I think sometimes saying those things to ourselves is very important. But I think this well, you're on a ship and you're being tossed on the ocean and like you're going to just sail against the wind. Why don't you try to find a different part of the ocean to sail into? You know, like couldn't the currents be going with you? So I think there is a kind of um, strategic maneuvering that for a lot of us feels like cheating. I mean, actually, when we do research with people, we're like, oh, what do you think about changing your situation so that you can't eat junk food? What if you just like didn't put things in the pantry that were unhealthy. They're like, oh, that would be cheating. I'm supposed to use willpower. It's like, no, you're not. And as somebody who has studied willpower for 20 years alongside grit, actually, I've done more research on self-control and willpower and that kind of behavior change than I have on grit and high achievement. I will tell you that willpower sucks. It's really not a reliable ally. And so, my motivation to write this book in part was that I think a lot of really hardworking people take the dangerous lesson of like hard work is really great because they miss the obvious thing, which is obviously the market matters more than anything. Would a cynical view of the book be that we have far less willpower than we would like to believe or admit? I don't know if that would be a cynical view of the book, but it would definitely be like if ChatGPT read my book and spat out like a one-liner, there's a chance that ChatGPT might spit out that one. It's definitely something I say over and over again. And I think it's something that call up any social scientist who studies behavior change and goal setting and healthy behavior, exercise, ask them how they feel about willpower. I challenge you to find a single one who thinks, oh yeah, willpower, that's what people should use. How many decisions in your day, speaking of ChatGPT, which actually I want to put this in there at some point and say what are the things that it's going to highlight, how many decisions in your day have you ChatGPT'd away, have you automated away, where in your environment, how much have you taken away decision making? Okay, well, when you really take away decision-making, you're not even using ChatGPT. When you're really taking away decision-making, you're in what's sometimes called neural autopilot or habit mode. And as you may have gotten to, but maybe not, Jubin, because I think I moved around the chapters, and I think now this one's toward the back. So you may not have read this, but the brain has two systems. One is the goal system, and one is the habit system. The goal system is any conscious 
deliberation at all, even if you use ChatGPT, which, by the way, if you ask me that question, I mean, all the time. I mean, I use it as much as I can so I can get better at it. But like ChatGPT fixed my garbage disposal. ChatGPT, like to help me fix the um, refrigerator. ChatGPT told me that I should be buying canned artichokes instead of frozen artichokes for the particular dish that I was making. So that's all the goal system. Even when you're using Google or ChatGPT, you're using your prefrontal cortex, you're thinking, you're making cost-benefit decisions, you're using rules of thumb. That's all the goal system. What is the habit system? The habit system is truly neural autopilot. That is when you have a cue and you don't think about anything. You just execute. So you walk into the bathroom, you reach for the toothbrush, you start brushing your teeth. You're not thinking, I wonder if I should pick up the toothbrush and brush my teeth right now. You just do it. Someone says, hey, how are you? You say, great, how are you? That's the habit system. So if you ask me how much of my daily life is on the habit system, like how much is on neural autopilot, I don't really know because that is the nature of neural autopilot. You're not really consciously aware of what you're doing. But research best estimates are about, let's say, 45 to 50%. I won't footnote about like why this, but let's say nearly half of your daily behavior is likely completely automatic. Yeah, it's like the Steve Jobs thing where he only wore the black turtleneck every day. I think there is a kind of like, well, the less I can burden my goal system with, not only Steve Jobs and, you know, fill in the blank, you know, Mark Zuckerberg. There are a lot of people who seem to kind of have taken Barack Obama, like who have taken to heart this idea that like some decisions can just be non-decisions because you're doing them on, but also William James and other great thinkers. I mean, I think every philosopher has recognized at some level that virtue, anybody who's thought about this seriously, I should say, not all philosophers particularly think about, but a life well lived, virtue, doing the right thing, you know, so much is is about getting the habits to be good habits and not bad habits. So if you ask me the question, like, Angela, are you intentional about that 50%? Let's call it half, just round numbers. Like, say half of what Angela does is on autopilot. Have I been intentional about getting those habits to be good habits and not bad habits? 100%. I assign in my class, every student has to develop a habit, and I do it with them, and I do it, you know, I do all the homework that my students do. And and so I'm constantly, Luis Van Aan, who we both know, oh my gosh, every high performer is thinking about, how can I put these good behaviors into habit mode? So I'm no different. I'm just like you and everyone else. I'm like, oh, what, what can my morning routine be expanded into so that I can like piggyback yet another good habit and get my bedtime routine and get my, like, what's the first thing I do when I come to a meeting? I'm trying to get everything I can into habit mode, but I have to get it into the habit mode the right way because you can also spend half of your life doing things habitually, but they're not necessarily good habits. They could be unhealthy habits. I cannot wait to read this book when it's out. When do you? I cannot wait to have it. When do you think? Do you have an idea? Is that a curse of My an author to say when? I would really like this book to be done by August 2024. And I have the ambition to write it before then, but it's what I'll be working on in the next few months. Thank you for doing this. Juven, it's been so much fun. I love talking to you about grit and I love your insights, actually. I think I learned at least as much about grit and success as you may have gleaned from me. I end all of these the same way, which is when you hear the word grit, what do you think of? <laughs> I can't believe I'm asking That's you that question. question I gotta be, I gotta be honest with you. That was an outer body experience asking when you I, that when question. When I think about grit, what do I think of? Could be a person, thing, expression. When I think about grit, I think about excellence. I think the Greek word for excellence is arete. And I don't even know if society cares as much about excellence as as we have in 
decades past, but I will always care about excellence. I will never get bored of watching people who are constantly trying to do something just a little bit better than they did yesterday. It will never tire me to see that craft. So when I think about grit, I think about excellence, and I think that's what keeps me interested in the topic. Angela, thank you. Thank you, Juven. That's it. Thanks for tuning in. Feel free to come back every Monday morning to listen to a new guest or go back into the archives when we've done more than 100 episodes. This podcast is a Kleiner Perkins production and the episode was edited by Eric Johnson from Lightning Pod. Thank you all.